Section 5 of Essays on Political Economy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on Political Economy by Frederic Bastiat. Section 5. 4. Theatres, Fine Arts. Ought the state to support the arts? There is certainly much to be said on both sides of this question. It may be said, in favor of the system of voting supplies for this purpose, that the arts enlarge, elevate, and harmonize the soul of a nation, that they divert it from too great an absorption in material occupations, encourage in it a love for the beautiful, and thus acts favorably on its manners, customs, morals, and even on its industry. It may be asked, what would become of music in France, without her Italian theatre and her conservatory, of the dramatic arts, without her Théâtre Francois, of painting and sculpture, without our collections, galleries, and museums? It might even be asked, whether without centralization, and consequently the support of the fine arts, that exquisite taste would be developed which is the noble appendage of French labor, and which introduces its productions to the whole world. In the face of such results, would it not be the height of imprudence to renounce this moderate contribution from all her citizens, which, in fact, in the eyes of Europe, realizes their superiority and their glory? To these and many other reasons, whose force I do not dispute, Arguments no less forcible may be opposed. It might first of all be said that there is a question of distributive justice in it. Does the right of the legislature extend to abridging the wages of the artisan, for the sake of adding to the profits of the artist? M. Lamartine said, If you cease to support the theatre, where will you stop? Will you not necessarily be led to withdraw your support from your colleges, your museums, your institutes? and your libraries. It might be answered, if you desire to support everything which is good and useful, where will you stop? Will you not necessarily be led to form a civil list for agriculture, industry, commerce, benevolence, education? Then is it certain that government aid favors the progress of art? This question is far from being settled, and we see very well that the theatres which prosper are those which depend upon their own resources. Moreover, if we come to higher considerations, we may observe that wants and desires arise the one from the other, and originate in regions which are more and more refined, in proportion, as the public wealth allows of their being satisfied. That government ought not to take part in this correspondence, because in a certain condition of present fortune, it could not by taxation stimulate the arts of necessity without checking those of luxury and thus interrupting the natural course of civilization. I may observe that these artificial transpositions of wants, tastes, labor, and population place the people in a precarious and dangerous position, without any solid basis. These are some of the reasons alleged by the adversaries of state intervention in what concerns the order in which citizens think their wants and desires should be satisfied, and to which, consequently, their activity should be directed. I am, I confess, 
one of those who think that choice and impulse ought to come from below and not from above from the citizen and not from the legislature and the opposite doctrine appears to me to tend to the destruction of liberty and of human dignity but by a deduction as false as it is unjust do you know what economists are accused of it is that when we disapprove of government support we are supposed to disprove of the thing itself whose support is discussed and to be the enemies of every kind of activity because we desire to see those activities on the one hand free and on the other seeking their own reward in themselves thus if we think that the state should not interfere by taxation in religious affairs we are atheists if we think the state ought not to interfere by taxation in education we are hostile to knowledge if we say that the state ought not by taxation to give a fictitious value to land or to any particular branch of industry we are enemies to property and labor if we think that the state ought not to support artists we are barbarians who look upon the arts as useless against such conclusions as these i protest with all my strength far from entertaining the absurd idea of doing away with religion education property labor and the arts when we say that the state ought to protect the free development of all these kinds of human activity without helping some of them at the expense of others we think on the contrary that all these living powers of society would develop themselves more harmoniously under the influence of liberty and that under such an influence no one of them would as is now the case be a source of trouble of abuses of tyranny and disorder our adversaries consider that an activity which is neither aided by supplies nor regulated by government is an activity destroyed we think just the contrary their faith is in the legislature not in mankind ours is in mankind not in the legislature thus m lamartine said upon this principle we must abolish the public exhibitions which are the honor and the wealth of this country but i would say to m lamartine according to your way of thinking not to support is to abolish because setting out upon the maxim that nothing exists independently of the will of the state you conclude that nothing lives but what the state causes to live but i oppose to this assertion the very example which you have chosen and beg you to remark that the grandest and noblest of exhibitions one which has been conceived in the most liberal and universal spirit and i might even make use of the term humanitary for it is no exaggeration is the exhibition now preparing in london the only one in which no government is taking any part and which is being paid for by no tax to return to the fine arts there are i repeat many strong reasons to be brought both for and against the system of government assistance the reader must see the especial object of this work leads me neither to explain these reasons nor to decide in their favor nor against them madame lamartine has advanced one argument which i cannot pass by in silence for it is closely connected with this economic study the economical question as regards theatres is comprised in one word labor it matters little what is the nature of this labor 
it is as fertile as productive a labor as any other kind of labor in the nation the theatres in france you know feed and salary no less than eighty thousand workmen of different kinds painters masons decorators costumers architects etc which constitute the very life and movement of several parts of this capital and on this account they ought to have your sympathies your sympathies say rather your money and further on he says the pleasures of paris are the labor and the consumption of the provinces and the luxuries of the rich are the wages and bread of two hundred thousand workmen of every description who live by the manifold industry of the theatres on the surface of the republic and who receive from these noble pleasures which render france illustrious the sustenance of their lives and the necessaries of their families and children it is to them that you will give sixty thousand francs very well very well great applause for my part i am constrained to say very bad very bad confining this opinion of course within the bounds of the economical question which we are discussing yes it is to the workmen of the theatres that a part at least of these sixty thousand francs will go a few bribes perhaps may be abstracted on the way perhaps if we were to look a little more closely into the matter we might find that the cake had gone another way and that those workmen were fortunate who had come in for a few crumbs but i will allow for the sake of argument that the entire sum does go to the painters decorators etc this is that which is seen but whence does it come this is the other side of the question and quite as important as the former where do these sixty thousand francs spring from and where would they go if a vote of the legislature did not direct them first towards the rue rivoli and thence towards the rue grenelle this is what is not seen certainly nobody will think of maintaining that the legislative vote has caused this sum to be hatched in a ballot urn that it is a pure addition made to the national wealth that but for this miraculous vote these sixty thousand francs would have been forever invisible and impalpable it must be admitted that all the majority can do is to decide that they shall be taken from one place to be sent to another and if they take one direction it is only because they have been diverted from another this being the case it is clear that the taxpayer who has contributed one franc will no longer have this franc at his own disposal it is clear that he will be deprived of some gratification to the amount of one franc and that the workman whoever he may be who would have received it from him will be deprived of a benefit to that amount let us not therefore be led by a childish illusion into believing that the vote of the sixty thousand francs may add anything whatever to the well-being of the country and to national labor it displaces enjoyments it transposes wages that is all will it be said that for one kind of gratification and one kind of labor it substitutes more urgent more moral more reasonable gratifications in labor i might dispute this i might say by taking sixty thousand francs from the taxpayers 
you diminish the wages of laborers, drainers, carpenters, blacksmiths, and increase in proportion those of the singers. There is nothing to prove that this latter class calls for more sympathy than the former. M. Lamartine does not say that it is so. He himself says that the labor of the theatres is as fertile, as productive, as any other, not more so. And this may be doubted, for the best proof that the latter is not so fertile as the former lies in this, that the other is to be called upon to assist it. But this comparison between the value and the intrinsic merit of different kinds of labor forms no part of my present subject. All I have to do here is to show that if M. Lamartine and those persons who commend his line of argument have seen on one side the salaries gained by the providers of the comedians, they ought on the other to have seen the salaries lost by the providers of the taxpayers. For want of this, they have exposed themselves to ridicule by mistaking a displacement for a gain. If they were true to their doctrine, there would be no limits to their demands for government aid, for that which is true of one franc and of sixty thousand is true, under parallel circumstances, of a hundred millions of francs. When taxes are the subject of discussion, you ought to prove their utility by reasons from the root of the matter, but not by this unlucky assertion. The public expenses support the working classes. This assertion disguises the important fact that public expenses always supersede private expenses, and that, therefore, we bring a livelihood to one workman instead of another, but add nothing to the share of the working class as a whole. Your arguments are fashionable enough, but they are too absurd to be justified by anything like reason. 5. Public Works Nothing is more natural than that a nation, after having assured itself that an enterprise will benefit the community, should have it executed by means of a general assessment. But I lose patience, I confess, when I hear this economic blunder advanced in support of such a project. Besides, it will be a means of creating labor for the workmen. The state opens a road, builds a palace, straightens a street cuts a canal, and so gives work to certain workmen. This is what is seen, but it deprives certain other workmen of work, and this is what is not seen. The road is begun. A thousand workmen come every morning, leave every evening, and take their wages. This is certain. If the road had not been decreed, if the supplies had not been voted, these good people would have had neither work nor salary there. This also is certain. But is this all? Does not the operation, as a whole, contain something else? At the moment when M. Dupin pronounces the emphatic words, The assembly has adopted. Do the millions descend miraculously on a moonbeam into the coffers of M. M. Fold and Bignot? In order that the evolution may be complete, as it is said, must not the state organize the receipts, as well as the expenditure? Must it not set its tax-gatherers and tax-payers to work, the former to gather and the latter to pay? 
study the question now in both its elements while you state the destination given by the state to the millions voted do not neglect to state also the destination which the taxpayers would have given but cannot now give to the same then you will understand that a public enterprise is a coin with two sides upon one is engraved a laborer at work with this device that which is seen on the other is a laborer out of work with the device that which is not seen the sophism which this work is intended to refute is the more dangerous when applied to public works inasmuch as it serves to justify the most wanton enterprises and extravagance when a railroad or a bridge are of real utility it is sufficient to mention this utility but if it does not exist what do they do recourse is had to this mystification we must find work for the workmen accordingly orders are given that the drains in the champ de mer be made and unmade the great napoleon it is said thought he was doing a very philanthropic work by causing ditches to be made and then filled up he said therefore what signifies the result all we want is to see wealth spread among the laboring classes but let us go to the root of the matter we are deceived by money to demand the cooperation of all the citizens in a common work in the form of money is in reality to demand a concurrence in kind for every one procures by his own labor the sum to which he is taxed now if all the citizens were to be called together and made to execute in conjunction a work useful to all this would be easily understood the reward would be found in the results of the work itself but after having called them together if you force them to make roads which no one will pass through palaces which no one will inhabit and this under the pretext of finding them work it would be absurd and they would have a right to argue with this labor we have nothing to do we prefer working on our own account a proceeding which consists in making the citizens cooperate in giving money but not labor does not in any way alter the general results the only thing is that the loss would react upon all parties by the former those whom the state employs escape their part of the loss by adding to it that which their fellow-citizens have already suffered there is an article in our constitution which says society favors and encourages the development of labor by the establishment of public works by the state the departments and the parishes as a means of employing persons who are in want of work as a temporary measure on any emergency during a hard winter this interference with the taxpayer may have its use it acts in the same way as securities it adds nothing either to labor or to wages but it takes labor and wages from ordinary times to give them at a loss it is true to times of difficulty as a permanent general systematic measure it is nothing else than a ruinous mystification an impossibility which shows a little excited labor which is seen and hides a great deal of prevented labor which is not seen six the intermediates society is the total of the forced 
or voluntary services, which men perform for each other, that is to say, of public services and private services. The former, imposed and regulated by the law, which it is not always easy to change, even when it is desirable, may survive with it their own usefulness, and still preserve the name of public services, even when they are no longer public services at all, but rather public annoyances. The latter belong to the sphere of the will, of individual responsibility. Everyone gives and receives what he wishes, and what he can, after a debate. They have always the presumption of real utility, in exact proportion to their comparative value. This is the reason why the former description of services so often becomes stationary, while the latter obey the law of progress. While the exaggerated development of public services, by the waste of strength which it involves, fastens upon society a fatal sycophancy, it is a singular thing that several modern sects, attributing this character to free and private services, are endeavouring to transform professions into functions. These sects violently oppose what they call intermediates. They would gladly suppress the capitalist, the banker, the speculator, the projector, the merchant, and the trader, accusing them of interposing between production and consumption, to extort from both, without giving either anything in return. Or rather, they would transfer to the state the work which they accomplish, for this work cannot be suppressed. The sophism of the socialists on this point is showing to the public what it pays to the intermediates in exchange for their services, and concealing from it what is necessary to be paid to the state. Here is the usual conflict between what is before our eyes and what is perceptible to the mind only, between what is seen and what is not seen. It was at the time of the scarcity, in 1847, that the socialist schools attempted and succeeded in popularizing their fatal theory. They knew very well that the most absurd notions have always a chance with people who are suffering, malisunda, fame. Therefore, by the help of the fine words, trafficking in men by men, speculation on hunger, monopoly, they began to blacken commerce, and to cast a veil over its benefits. What can be the use, they say, of leaving to the merchants the care of importing food from the United States and the Crimea? Why do not the state, the departments, and the towns organize a service for provisions and a magazine for stores? They would sell at a return price, and the people, poor things, would be exempted from the tribute which they pay to free, that is, to egotistical individuals, and anarchical commerce. The tribute paid by the people to commerce is that which is seen. The tribute which the people would pay to the state, or to its agents, in the socialist system, is what is not seen. In what does this pretended tribute, which the people pay to commerce, consist? in this, that two men render each other a mutual service, in all freedom, and under the pressure of competition and reduced prices. 
When the hungry stomach is at Paris, and corn which can satisfy is at Odessa, the suffering cannot cease till the corn is brought into contact with the stomach. There are three means by which this contact may be effected. First, the famished men may go themselves and fetch the corn. Second, they may leave this task to those to whose trade it belongs. Third, they may club together and give the office in charge to public functionaries. Which of these three methods possesses the greatest advantages? In every time, in all countries, and the more free, enlightened, and experienced they are, men have voluntarily chosen the second. I confess that this is sufficient, in my opinion, to justify this choice. I cannot believe that mankind, as a whole, is deceiving itself upon a point which touches it so nearly. But let us now consider the subject. For thirty-six millions of citizens to go and fetch the corn they want from Odessa is a manifest impossibility. The first means, then, goes for nothing. The consumers cannot act for themselves. They must, of necessity, have recourse to intermediates, officials or agents. But observe that the first of these three means would be the most natural. In reality, the hungry man has to fetch his corn. It is a task which concerns himself, a service due to himself. If another person, on whatever ground, performs this service for him, takes the task upon himself, this latter has a claim upon him for a compensation. I mean by this to say that intermediates contain in themselves the principle of remuneration. However that may be, since we must refer to what the socialists call a parasite, I would ask, which of the two is the most exacting parasite, the merchant or the official? Commerce, free of course, otherwise I could not reason upon it, commerce, I say, is led by its own interests to study the seasons, to give daily statements of the state of the crops, to receive information from every part of the globe, to foresee wants, to take precautions beforehand. It has vessels always ready, correspondence everywhere, and it is its immediate interest to buy at the lowest possible price, to economize in all the details of its operations, and to attain the greatest results by the smallest efforts. It is not the French merchants only who are occupied in procuring provisions for France in time of need, and if their interest leads them irresistibly to accomplish their task at the smallest possible cost, the competition which they create amongst each other leads them no less irresistibly to cause the consumers to partake of the profits of those realized savings. The corn arrives. It is to the interest of commerce to sell it as soon as possible, so as to avoid risks, to realize its funds, and begin again the first opportunity. Directed by the comparison of prices, it distributes food over the whole service of the country, beginning always at the highest price, that is, where the demand is the greatest. It is impossible to imagine an organization more completely calculated to meet the interest of those who are in want, and the beauty of this organization, unperceived as it is by the socialists, results from the very fact that it is free. 
it is true the consumer is obliged to reimburse commerce for the expenses of conveyance freight store-room commission etc but can any system be devised in which he who eats corn is not obliged to defray the expenses whatever they may be of bringing it within his reach the remuneration for the service performed has to be paid also but as regards its amount this is reduced to the smallest possible sum by competition and as regards its justice it would be very strange if the artisans of paris would not work for the artisans of marseilles when the merchants of marseilles work for the artisans of paris if according to the socialist intervention the state were to stand in the stead of commerce what would happen i should like to be informed where the saving would be to the public would it be in the price of purchase imagine the delegates of forty thousand parishes arriving at odessa on a given day and on the day of need imagine the effect upon prices would the saving be in the expenses would fewer vessels be required fewer sailors fewer transports fewer sloops or would you be exempt from the payment of all these things would it be in the profits of the merchants would your officials go to odessa for nothing would they travel and work on the principle of fraternity must they not live must not they be paid for their time and do you believe that these expenses would not exceed a thousand times the two or three per cent which the merchant gains at the rate of which he is ready to treat and then consider the difficulty of levying so many taxes and of dividing so much food think of the injustice of the abuses inseparable from such an enterprise think of the responsibility which would weigh upon the government the socialists who have invented these follies and who in the days of distress have introduced them into the minds of the masses take to themselves literally the title of advanced men and it is not without some danger that custom that tyrant of tongues authorizes the term and the sentiment which it involves advanced this supposes that these gentlemen can see further than the common people that their only fault is that they are too much in advance of their age and if the time is not yet come for suppressing certain free services pretended parasites the fault is to be attributed to the public which is in the rear of socialism i say from my soul and my conscience the reverse is the truth and i know not to what barbarous age we should have to go back if we would find the level of socialist knowledge on this subject these modern sectarians incessantly oppose association to actual society they overlook the fact that society under a free regulation is a true association far superior to any of those which proceed from their fertile imaginations let me illustrate this by an example before a mutual services and to helping each other in a common object and that all may be considered with respect to others intermediates if for example in the course of the operation the conveyance becomes important enough to occupy one person the spinning another the weaving another why should the first be considered a parasite more than the other two the conveyance must be made must it not 
does not he who performs it devote to it his time and trouble? And by doing so does he not spare that of his colleagues? Do these do more, or other than this, for him? Are they not equally dependent for remuneration, that is, for the division of the produce, upon the law of reduced price? Is it not, in all liberty, for the common good, that this separation of work takes place, and that these arrangements are entered into? What do we want with a socialist, then, who, under the pretense of organizing for us, comes despotically to break up our voluntary arrangements, to check the division of labor, to substitute isolated efforts for combined ones, and to send civilization back? Is association, as I describe it here, in itself less association, because every one enters and leaves it freely, chooses his place in it, judges and bargains for himself on his own responsibility, and brings with him the spring and warrant of personal interest? That it may deserve this name, is it necessary that a pretended reformer should come and impose upon us his plan and his will, and, as it were, to concentrate mankind in himself? The more we examine these advanced schools, the more do we become convinced that there is but one thing at the root of them, ignorance proclaiming itself infallible, and claiming despotism in the name of this infallibility. I hope the reader will excuse this digression. It may not be altogether useless, at a time when declamations, springing from St. Simonian, Philanstrian, and Icarian books, are invoking the press and the tribune, and which seriously threaten the liberty of labor and commercial transactions. End of section 5 Recording by Katie Riley February 2010